Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're back in the youth room like we were many years ago. And the reason why is because with our new youth pastor, Pastor Dustin, the youth group's growing and they need more room in the sanctuary. So um, I thought it would be good to have that change. So uh, we're back here in the, the smaller room. So those of you that are watching on live stream, I'm going to address you. We're not live streaming on YouTube or the church's Facebook. You're only going to be able to find the live stream on my Facebook just because I'm doing it through my phone and not through our church system. So with all that being done, I'll talk to you guys now. So I don't know how many of you guys have read the short story or seen the television special. It's by an author named James Clavell. It's called The Children's Story. It came out in 1981. Um, my mother used to show this to her students when she was a high school English teacher. And it's a very scary short story. And, and, there, and so you can go on YouTube and watch it. But basically, it's what would happen if the United States was overtaken. And this was back in the 80s in the middle of the, you know, the Cold War. What would happen if the United States got taken over by communists? And so it starts out in a classroom, any classroom, like probably third graders. And the teacher, she's an older teacher, and she looks really nervous. And the new teacher walks in, and the new teacher is wearing like a brown uniform, kind of almost like communistic. She's very pretty. She's very articulate. And she says, hello, children, I'm going to be your teacher today. And the other teacher that's been their teacher starts weeping and crying, and she ushers her off. And the teacher begins to ingratiate herself to the students. And basically, um, she comes in and does some weird things. First of all, one of the students raises her hand and says, we usually pledge allegiance to the flag at the beginning of the class. And she's like, okay, I tell you what, boys and girls, let's do something different. Let's bring the flag over and let's cut up the flag. And the kids are like, we don't do that. She's like, well, let's think about it. It'll be fun. So the kids are like, oh, are we supposed to do this? And so she starts cutting up the flag. And then um, she's like, what should we do with the flag now? And one of the kids says, like, throw it out the window. So they throw the American flag out the window. And she's like, you've been very good, boys and girls. And so she's like, I want you to close your eyes and pray. And they're like, well, we pray to God. She's like, no, I don't want you to pray to God. I want you to pray to the government because the government is your God. And you pray, and let me backtrack. She goes, let me backtrack. That's not exactly what she says. She says, I want you to pray to your God to give you candy. Okay? So all you boys and girls, close your eyes and pray to God to give you candy. So all the boys are, and girls are closing their eyes on the desk and, and they're praying for candy. And they open their eyes and there's no candy. And she's like, well, your God must not be very good if he's not giving you candy. How about you pray to the government to give you candy? And they're like, the government? She's like, yes, you're a big brother. You're, you know. And so the boys and girls start praying. Well, this one little boy, Johnny, at the back, he keeps his eyes open because he's real suspicious. He's watching her the whole time. And so they're like, they're praying and praying, and then she starts putting candy on the table. And then the boys and girls open their eyes, and there's candy and they're all excited because God didn't put the candy there, but the government did. And the little boy, Johnny, says, you put them there. I saw you. You put them there. And she's like, you're a very observant little boy, Johnny. 
And that's the lesson. Your God will never provide for you, but your government will. And she's like, little boys and girls, you're not going home tonight. You're going to stay here at the school. Because one girl's like, well, are we going to go home tonight and see our parents? She's like, no, you're not going to see your parents. You're going to be in this class for a long, long time. And we're going to sleep here. And we're going to have fun, boys and girls. And you're going to learn all these things. And then it kind of like ends with it fade to black with her kind of in front of the classroom with like this sinister smirk on her face. You can go watch that on... So I remember seeing that like in sixth and seventh grade when I was growing up because my mom would show it to her students when they did Animal Farm um, because it kind of talks... But the whole point is what happens when children get indoctrinated. And you might be like, what in the world does this have to do with Daniel? Indoctrinating children. Well, really, this is the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar tried to do with Daniel and the three other Israelite boys. So tonight, we are going to start the book of Daniel. And this is one of the Old Testament's most confusing and controversial books. And so, chapters 1 through 6 are fairly easy to teach. Chapters 7 through 12... I may say things like, I have no idea what this means, but here's my best guess, okay? So, why study the book of Daniel? I found that most Christians are very familiar with the New Testament. You're familiar with the Gospels, you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, um, but a lot of Christians aren't that familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, Two-thirds of your Bible is actually Old Testament. So we're going to move through the book of Daniel over the next few weeks, actually probably all the way up to Christmas. It's going to take us about 12, 13 weeks to get through it. And so before we dive into the book and just start jumping in and reading, um, I want us to kind of get our bearings straight. And I want us to do some introductory issues related just to historical, the setting, how it's structured. So let's first of all just talk about the, the setting, the historical setting. If you remember your Israelite history, who is Israel's greatest king? It was King David. Okay, after King David died, his son Solomon reigned. And that was kind of King David and Solomon. Israel was kind of at its peak. But then under Solomon's two sons, the nation split into civil war. And there was a a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Israel. Judah. And so Assyria, the pagan foreign nation, they conquered the northern kingdom Israel, which only left the southern kingdom Judah, which is really a tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. So where Jerusalem was, this the southern part uh, of what would be modern day Israel. And so Daniel was born during the very last days of Judah. Um, so the northern kingdom had already been taken over by Assyria. The southern kingdom's barely hanging on. And so in 605 BC, I'm make sure this is on your notes. In 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, he marched his imperial forces into Jerusalem, tore down the wall, burned the temple, and brought back a lot of especially the royal family as prisoners of war and brought them back to Babylon. 
So that is the historical setting, is Daniel has been taken from Jerusalem in the very final days of Jerusalem as a nation at that time. And he and his friends have been carted off, have been taken captive, really, back to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. So as we read, let's just read the first three verses, because in the first three verses, you get this historical setting. So as you look at the book of Daniel, hopefully everybody's there. It's, it's after Ezekiel. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphanaz, his, king, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility. Now we'll keep reading here in just a moment. So this is the beginning of the exile, where finally after all these years of being in the promised land, having all these wicked kings, the northern kingdom has been taken over, and now the southern kingdom has been taken over, and Israel has been displaced from their homeland, especially the city of Jerusalem. Now this is nothing new. God warned Israel all the way back in the book of Leviticus, if they acted treacherously against the Lord, this would happen to them. God would send a foreign nation to take them over. So, in Leviticus 26.33, God says, I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your, hand shall be a desol- or your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be laid to waste. So God was patient with Israel for many years until that final time when God ordained that Nebuchadnezzar would come in and besiege the city and overtake them and displace them and send them into really 70 years of exile. But it's very interesting in verse 2. Notice what it says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, you don't get this in your English translations, but when he speaks of the house of God, the temple, there's, a, there's, there's literally a prefix in the original language that says the house of the God. Okay, the God, capital the, capital G-O-D. Now, why does Daniel refer to God as the God? It's, I mean, don't we normally just call him God? Well, he, there, there's a stylistic reason why Daniel calls God the God, only God, because he wants to remind his readers just th- of that fact. There is only one and true living God, the God, and that all the other gods are idols. So as they're going to Babylon, they're going to be faced with false gods after false gods after false gods. And he wants his readers to remember that God alone is the one true and living God. And so Nebuchadnezzar ransacks the royal treasury, gets all that gold, gets all of that um, silver, all of the, all the jewels. And notice what your Bible says, takes them back to the land of Shinar. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you have to ask the question, where in the world is Shinar, the land of Shinar? Well, I don't know the land of Shinar. It's a code word. It is a euphemism. 
Okay, the land of Shinar was where, the, it was the site of the Tower of Babel. Okay? If you go back to Genesis 11, Shinar was the site of the Tower of Babel. So what happened at the Tower of Babel? The nations gathered to build a monument to themselves because they thought they were gods. And God looked down and said, look at that puny little tower. And then he scattered them because they wanted to have one language. So Babylon emerged from Babel, which was on the plain of Shinar. So even the Tower of Babel and the name Babylon sound the same. And basically, the, the plain of Shinar, the Tower of Babel, Babylon is basically everything that epitomizes evil against God. It's this evil nation, a society at war with God. And so what Daniel wants us to feel from the very beginning of the book is there's an ominous tone here. Things aren't good. They're being carted off to where the Tower of Babel was, the plain of Shinar, Babylon. Okay? So that's the setting. Now, that's the historical setting. Let's talk about the literary structure and the language in which the book of Daniel is written. So you can easily divide Daniel into two parts. Okay? The part that we're probably the most familiar with, with the stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den and the, the big statue and the writing on the wall, that's all in chapters 1 through 6. These are what we call court narratives. These are stories or narratives about Daniel and his three friends in the king's court. And we're very familiar with these, these narratives. The fiery furnace, lion's den. These are probably the stories you grew up in Sunday school remembering chapters 1 through 6. And I'm tempted to stop at chapters 1 through 6 because they're a little bit easier to teach. The second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, is what we call apocalyptic literature, which is very similar to the book of Revelation. You've got weird images, you've got beasts, you've got prophecies about the future. There's a lot of things that we're not that familiar with that are going to kind of stretch us to try to understand what's going on. So it's, it's apocalyptic literature. So chapters 1 through 6, we're going to have a lot of fun because these are, these are narratives that we remember and will bring out a lot of the meaning. But when we get into chapter 7, it's going to be a lot more difficult to navigate. And so it's going to take us a little bit more time to navigate the second half of the book. And that's where I'm going to come down and say, you know what? Sometimes scholars really don't know exactly what this means. We, we can't be dogmatic on it. Okay. So chapters 1 through 6, court narratives. I don't like to use the word stories because it kind of sounds like they're made up. They're narratives. <laughs> they're historical accounts of what happened to Daniel and his three friends. 7 through 12 is visions and apocalyptic stuff very similar to the book of Revelation. Now let's talk about the language. As you probably know, most of the Old Testament was written in the book of, I mean book, in the language of Hebrew, the Hebrew language, except for large sections of Daniel. Daniel is written in two languages, okay? So let me show you where the break is. In chapters 1, through chapter 2, verse 4a, it's written in Hebrew. From chapter 2, 4b, to chapter 7, verse 28, it's written in Aramaic. 
So that's the different languages. It's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. And then for some strange reason in chapters 8 through 12, it switches back to Hebrew. So starts in Hebrew, moves to Aramaic, switches back to Hebrew. And you, and you say, well, okay, why does Daniel do this? Because it's very unusual for a book of the Bible to be written in two different languages. Like the New Testament's all written in Greek. Almost all of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. This is one book that's written in two different languages. So most scholars believe that Daniel does this on purpose, stylistically. It starts out with Hebrew boys. <laughs> Hebrew. These boys have been taken from their Hebrew roots to a foreign land. And then from chapter 2 through 7, Daniel writes in a not Hebrew language, but a Gentile language, Aramaic, to talk about their experience in the Gentile world. So Aramaic was the official language of Babylon. Everyone spoke it. So Daniel, because we'll find out his position in the government, he was bilingual. And he was probably writing his memoirs from the time that he was in the Gentile court in Babylon, and he was writing the language that he was probably most familiar with at that time. Then in chapters 8 through 12, these are prophecies that go back to discussing the nation of Israel. So he goes back and writes in Hebrew because the focus is on the nation of Israel. Of Israel be more appropriate. It's not focused so much on the Gentile world, but on the nation of Israel. So Daniel's bilingual, the book's bilingual. Stylistically, it starts with these boys taken out of their Hebrew life, their Israelite life. They're plopped into a Gentile world. The language changes to the Gentile language of Aramaic. And then when the prophecies go back to Israel, it goes back to the Hebrew language. So you won't see that in your English translations. You just know in the original language there's a stylistic literary change in the language. And that's what scholars believe about that. So this book, the book of Daniel, is a story about living as strangers in a strange land. It's about two kingdoms, Jerusalem and Babylon. When you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation has two cities, the New Jerusalem and Babylon the harlot. Okay, so I want you to think metaphorically, okay, there are only really two cities. Okay, not, not literally. Jerusalem and Babylon. Okay, so let's talk about the truth here. You are a dual citizen. You are a citizen of the United States of America. I'm assuming most of you are. You're a citizen of this earthly kingdom, this geopolitical nation called America. You live here on planet Earth in this culture, in this nation, with this laws in America. You're a citizen. But at the same time, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your true citizenship is in heaven. And so here's where the struggle comes. How do I live as a citizen of heaven in the citizenship of America. In other words, I sometimes find myself as a stranger in a strange land. I'm not really meant to be here. I'm meant to be in heaven, and I'm not there yet. So it's the already and the not yet. It's the tension of having one foot in heaven and one foot in the city. So Augustine called it the city of man and the city of God. 
The city of God's heaven, the city of man is, is you know, human governments. And so we're still living in the city of man among a pagan culture in, in, in the United States that is pretty secular. And at the same time, we're called to be God's people. And so how do we live as God's people as strangers in a strange land? And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. Daniel was displaced from his homeland, Jerusalem, and had to learn how to live in Babylon. And here's the truth of what we need to understand. And these are the words of Jesus. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, he's talking about God in money there, but you can't serve two masters. Our ultimate master is Jesus. He's our Lord, and we serve him alone. Okay. One more bit of historical background before we dive into this passage of scripture this morning or this, this evening. The basis for our study of Daniel comes from one psalm. Psalm 137 was probably the last psalm written. Now, you would think the last psalm in the order would be the last one written, but historically, this speaks about exile. 70 years. So what does Psalm 137, 1 through 4 say? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We've been taken out of Zion. We've been taken out of Jerusalem. And on the waters of Babylon, we're weeping because we remember what life was like back in Israel. And we're in this new land. And so how do we sing the Lord's... Verse 4, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Paraphrase it. How do you live for Jesus in a secular culture? How do you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. As strangers in a strange land, Christians who are not of this world, how do we live in Babylon, if you will, while we await our permanent home in heaven? That's the question we need to be thinking about. And so what the book of Daniel is going to do is it's going to paint for us a rich tapestry of how we do that. How do we live as God's people in a land that we really don't belong in. And we're here until Jesus comes back. So you can't escape it. We can't be monks and just go live, you know, as hermits or monks. You're in the culture. So you can bury your head and pretend it goes away, or you can read from the scriptures and learn, like, how do I live as a Christian in this land that's become so strange? So let me just ask you a question. We can maybe have a little bit more dialogue tonight since we're not so far spread out in the sanctuary. Some of you are older than me. Some of you are younger than me. But those of you that are older in the room, has, this is a, an obvious question, but do you find yourself, when you look around in American culture, find yourself living in a place that you never thought you'd live based upon where it was when you were growing up? I mean, some of you, Jerry, I mean, you're what, 80, you're in your 80s, right? Yes. Okay. So lots changed. Drastically. 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 You know, some of you are in your 30s and 40s. Some of us are in our early 50s. Um, and even just things have changed a lot. And I think about 
our kids and what they're going to be growing up in, and even my grandkids. And so how do we navigate living in a culture that is pretty much ungodly? Now, this is Pastor Sean's opinion. You can take it or leave it. I don't think things are going to get any better unless God brings about a major revival in our land, like a third great awakening. Um, so the only answer is going to be God pouring out his spirit in revival. And that's a whole other sermon for another time. So let's jump into the book of Daniel. And let's just read verses 3 through 7. And as we jump in, what I want us to do tonight is we're going to ask, um, we're going to ask four major questions that emerge from chapter one that set the stage for the entire book. So these four questions will frame how we continue to study. So this is a big picture tonight, but they emerge from chapter one. So chapter one sets the stage. We'll ask these questions. So let's continue reading. So we've got the historical background there. That the nobles have been taken from Israel to the plain of Shinar back in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the city of Jerusalem. And so let's pick up in verse, um, well, let's just pick up in verse 3. The, then the king commanded Aspenaz, or Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, let's stop right there and let's ask the first question from this passage of scripture. Here's question number one. How do we remain dependent, keyword dependent, upon Christ? while immersed in a world of seduction that champions independence from Christ. We live in a world that champions independence from Jesus. What is the message you hear all the time? You just be you. Nobody has the right to tell me how I can live. I can express myself. I can do what I want. I'm autonomous. I'm dependent. I'm going to be who I want to be. I am an independent, autonomous, powerful person, and nobody can tell me what to do. Well, that's not the message of Christianity. Because Jesus is Lord, and he tells us what we're to do and how we're to live based upon his word. So if we're not careful, we can be seduced into thinking that we can have that attitude. Well, I can be independent of Jesus. I don't need to have Jesus. I, I'm an independent, self-sufficient, autonomous person that can do what I want. Now, I don't know if we'd ever say that out loud. <laughs> but sometimes in the choices that we make, we can act like we're really not that dependent upon Jesus. You can be solely slowly seduced by the culture to basically 
just be seduced to go with the flow. Now, in other parts of the world, Satan attacks the church through persecution. Last time I checked, this is not North Korea. This is not Sudan. This is not Iran or Afghanistan or places like that. Now, with that being said, although I do think it's coming to America, right now, the primary way Satan attacks us is not with persecution, but with seduction. Worldliness, materialism, pleasure, selfishness, independence. So, we see Daniel and his three friends seduced, literally, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so what I want to show you happening here is you read this text. What we see unfold before us is an ingenious reprogramming plan by King Nebuchadnezzar. He's like the teacher I talked about at the beginning of the story, of the, you know, the children's story. He's going to indoctrinate these boys. He's going to enculturate them. He's going to try to reprogram them. Because who are these boys? They are Israelites from Jerusalem, from the tribe of Judah. That's their identity. So he takes these youths. And when I think of youths, I think of um, my cousin, Benjamin. the youths, the youths. He takes the youths, sorry, from the royal family and brings them to the king's palace. And notice your Bible says three years. It's a three-year reprogramming system. And most scholars, we don't know exactly how old these boys were, but, but most scholars believe they were probably around 14 or 15 years at the time. So these are young Freshmen, eighth graders, freshmen in high school type young men. 14, 15 year old boys, if you will. Very impressionable. Go ahead, go ahead, Mark. You can stop me. No, go stop me. You can stop me. Go ahead. It's, just, it's sort of like trafficking in kids and it's just other, it opens other doors to other current issues of the world today is all I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, these are young, these are young boys that are being taken in for three years. And so from this text... I have a lot of numbered things here. So there's like, okay, the big question, we're still in question number one. How do we remain dependent on Christ? Okay. Under this big heading, there's four parts of this plan. Okay. Four parts of this plan that Nebuchadnezzar does over this three-year period with these boys. And it's very ingenious. If you're going to indoctrinate or um, brainwash young men, this is what you do. So first of all, in verse three, we see the issue of isolation. Okay, isolation. Bring some, verse 3, bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, use without blemish of good appearance and skillful wisdom, endowed with knowledge, and let them come to the king's palace. Where were they taken from? They were taken from their family. It's bad enough that they're taken out of Jerusalem, but they're taken out of their, like, Think about a 14-year-old boy. He's carted off to Babylon, probably 900 miles away. Okay, at least I've got my family. No, you don't. I'm taking you away from your family, and you're going to go stay at the palace. You're going to be part of this education system in the palace. So we're going to isolate you from your family. That's what cults often do. 
isolates you from your family. You're, you're no longer back in Jerusalem where you can worship in the temple with your family and friends. You're no longer under the teaching of God's word. Uh, you don't have the priests and the prophets coming and checking in on your family. This is ingenious. If you want to brainwash young men, isolate them from their source of stability and their source of identity. Isolate them. We don't want your parents influencing you. We're going to put you in the king's court for three years and we're going to teach you because we don't want you to be Israelite Jewish boys. We want you to be good Babylonian boys who will be subject to King Nebuchadnezzar, not to the Lord God of Israel. So number one is isolation. Okay, number two, we see the tactic of indoctrination. What were, they do, what were they to do for three years? So, so look there at the end of verse 4. So youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans is just another word for Babylonians. For three years, we're going to teach you literature and language of the Chaldeans. We're going to teach you the literature of the Chaldeans. We're going to... We're going to expose you to higher learning. In other words, what are they going to do? We're going to try to shift your worldview. Your worldview, boys, has been around the God of Israel, the temple worship, the priesthood, the law, obedience to the one true God. Now you're being exposed to Babylonian culture, beliefs, and false religion. So if we can get you away from your parents and isolate you, and for three years if we can indoctrinate you to Babylonian culture, then your worldview is going to start to shift, and you'll start in adopting the ways of the Babylonians, and you'll forget about your Israelite roots. So three years, maybe after three years, they forget about the God of Israel because they're learning about new things. So isolation, indoctrination. Okay, the third thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar does the third part of this devious plan or reprogramming strategy was seducing these young men to have a false dependence. Now, what do I mean by false dependence? What does the king do in verse 5? The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. This may have been the best spread they've ever seen. This was like Thanksgiving on steroids. Okay, I have access to the king's food. I have access to the king's wine. I have everything I need. I have no needs. If you are in the lap of luxury and you're separated from your family, and you have no needs, and you're being indoctrinated, what is slowly going to happen? Well, I don't need to really depend upon God anymore. I don't need to depend upon his grace. I don't need to depend upon his provision. The king's providing me everything I need. He's given me education. He's given me a place to live in the palace. He's given me all this food. I've got the king's food. Um, I'm in the lap of luxury. And if you've been in the lap of luxury for about three years, what do you start to, what attitude do you start to adopt? I may be entitled to this type of stuff. I may deserve this stuff. And this is a great lifestyle. I don't want this taken away from me. So I'm isolated from my family. 
I'm indoctrinated with a new worldview and I'm given all of the stuff that I need. So basically what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing is saying, everything that you depended on back in Israel is forgotten. I am your God now. I'm your source of food. I'm your source of education. I'm your source of identity. Everything centers around me as your new quote unquote God. And we'll find out next week what happens with that. Or, you know, you know, actually in two weeks. Okay. Then here's the final step. The last step of this brainwashing reprogram. He uses confusion in reprogramming these young men. Now, why do I say confusing? What do we see in verse 7? The chief of the eunuchs just randomly changes their names. I'm going to change your name. It'd be like the king's servant comes and says, Rico, you're no longer Rico. Your name is Hezekiah now. Okay, why, do I have a choice in this? No, you're, that's your name. So they change their names. Now, it's very important because these names that these boys have are Hebrew names. And if you know anything about names in the Old Testament, names mean something, right? Okay, so what do their, what do their names mean in Hebrew and what do they change to? So Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. Daniel. El is, is the word for God. Elohim. El. Daniel. God is my judge. So this is fitting because Daniel lived an upright life of obedience to God. But what's his name changed to? Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar references a call for a pagan god to protect his life. It's named after a pagan god. Okay? Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Hananiah. Yah is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which was associated with the moon god of Babylon. Okay? Mishael means there is no God like the God of Israel. There is no God like the God of Israel. His name is changed to Meshach, which means who's your God? What's your God's name? Well, my, 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 my name means there's no God but the God of Israel. Are you sure that's your name? Who is your God? You see how confusing that is? Okay, Meshach. I'm sorry, Azariah's name means the Lord will help. What's his name changed to? Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo was the second greatest God in Babylon. So in a calculating way of confusion, the king goes right to the heart of their identity and strips them of their names. And their names are all associated with a dependence upon the Lord. And then the king gives them pagan names based upon moon gods and all these other strange things. So the first question we've got to ask tonight is how do we remain dependent upon Christ when the culture tells us to live independent of Christ? What is, Babylon, what is, what is Nebuchadnezzar doing to these boys in Babylon? I don't want you to be dependent upon the God of Israel. I want you to be dependent upon me as your God. I'm going to isolate you from your parents. I'm going to indoctrinate you with Babylonian culture. 
I'm going to change your name and I'm going to provide for all your needs so you'll forget about all that for three years and you will be assimilated into totally being a Babylonian. Your name's changed, your religion's changed, your worldview's changed, your, your values have changed. You are no longer an Israelite, you're a Babylonian. So how are these boys going to handle it? They're 14, 15 years old. How are they going to do that? So that's the, that's the first big question. Okay. Second question to ask tonight is this. How do we remain faithful? Okay. First was how do we remain dependent? This is how do we remain faithful to Christ, immersed in a world that lures us to compromise our allegiance to Christ? We want to be dependent upon Christ, and we want to remain faithful to Christ. A world tells us be dependent upon yourself and don't stand up for Christ. Don't pledge allegiance to Christ. Compromise. So, these boys, think about 14 and 15 year old boys for a minute. You're away from your parents and you're in the lap of luxury. Think about peer pressure going on. Yeah. Mom and dad aren't around. We kind of get away with whatever we want. Let's Nobody's going to know. We're 900 miles away from home. Okay, so let's keep reading and see what happens. So let's read verses 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you, would you endanger your head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them only vegetables. Okay, so we see three things Daniel does here not to compromise. The issue's compromised here, right? What does Daniel do? Well, first, very important, he makes a decisive and resolved commitment not to compromise. What do you see there in verse 8? What's the key word there? Daniel resolved. He resolved that he would not defile himself. He made a resolution. Now, this was a considerable risk. What would happen if you refused the king's food? I mean, that could have been outright defiance. The king said, you don't want my food? Well, go eat the slop or go, I'll go imprison you or, you know, you don't, you don't defy me. You eat what I put in front of you because I'm the king. In addition, there would have been prayer pressure because everybody else is doing it. All the, like, man, this is food we've never seen before. Let's, let's grub it up. We've got some grub here. So there was this great temptation here for Daniel to eat this food that probably he'd never seen before. And he's 900 miles away from home, and nobody would know if he compromised. Word probably wouldn't get back to his parents that he didn't eat kosher. I mean, we're thinking the food's probably not kosher, based upon Israel diet. I'm not going to defile myself with this pagan food, no matter how great it looks. I need to eat what God has, has told me to eat. 
But think about it. All the other boys are just digging in. I mean, you put a nice spread in front of 15-year-old boys, what are they going to do? I don't know what that is, but it looks good. I'm just going to start, you know, they're going to start digging in. So maybe he had temptation. Or he could have said, you know what? God, I'm mad at you because you took me out of my home and you, you stuck me here, and so I'm just going to go ahead and eat whatever is put in front of me out of, out of protest to what you've done to me, God. You, you're the one who put me in this foreign land, so I'm just going to enjoy everything I want to. But no, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. That's the first thing he does. Second thing he does, which you'll see Daniel doing this often throughout the book of Daniel, instead of being combative against the culture, he respectfully stands boldly as salt and light working within the culture. Now, one thing you see about Daniel is he doesn't back down, but he, he's bold but respectful. Do you notice what he does there? He, he modestly asks the chief of the eunuchs, please would you allow us to not eat the food, but to just eat vegetables? Look at verse 12. What does he say in verse 12? Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and waters to drink. Literally in the original language, there's the word please there. Please test your servants. We're asking, please. Okay? Now, we live in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, but God has instructed us to be salt and light and bold, but to also work within the culture the best that we can. So Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so these are Israelites living in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, this is where we need to be very wise as Christians in how we engage in the political and civic process. We need to pray for our communities. We need to pray that our community here in northeastern Colorado is a good, healthy, safe place to live. Because if this is a good, healthy, safe place to live, it's good for everybody. Okay, We don't want crime... We don't want drugs. We don't want prostitution. We don't want a bunch of evils of society to be here. So we should be working within the means necessary in our best we can locally, I mean, even nationally, to, 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 to be politically active, to vote, to, to work towards the welfare of our city. Because the only other posture, there's two postures you can have. You can be in a bubble and act like nothing's happening. Just hope it goes away. Hope this evil does, this goes away. Or you can be so combative that all you're doing is complaining about it and yelling about it and not doing anything about it. The middle road is, I guess you'd say, is as an individual citizen. Now, the church is different. The church as an institution needs to be careful how we engage in the political process because we're the church. But as individual Christians who are citizens of this county and of the city and of the state, you have a right under a constitutional republic to work towards the betterment of our culture through a way that is bold but also respectful. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, and that's what Daniel does here. And then third, what does he do? He trusts the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, why do I say that? I mean, 
did Daniel, I mean, Daniel kind of just said, Lord, I'm trusting you for 10 days. I mean, here's the test. If after 10 days of just eating water and vegetables, we don't, we were like all gaunt and our faces look gaunt and we look skinny. We haven't, we haven't passed the test. Because what was the test? These guys are eating this big spread. They're going to be nice and, you know, they're going to be fattened up and healthy. And, and the eunuch's like, you can't just eat vegetables and water. You guys are going to be scrawny and you're not going to have, it's not going to sustain you. And he said, just test us for 10 days. So he had to trust the Lord that God would reward that. God would bless that. God would be with him in that 10-day period. And, and he trusted that if I, here's the principle, if I do what is right, I'm going to trust the Lord for the results. I'm going to be a person of integrity. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to trust the Lord wholeheartedly for the results. Okay? So the first question we ask tonight is this. How do we remain dependent upon Christ? Dependent. Not on the government, not on ourselves, not on all these different things. How do we remain dependent upon Christ? Number two, how do we remain faithful to Christ and not compromise? Okay, so here's the third big question we ask tonight. It is this. How... Do we fully trust in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things? Daniel is a book that unashamedly proclaims the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. We will see this as we go through. Now let's just see how it unfolds. You may have missed this as you just read chapter 1, but let's go back and, and read it. Okay, What does verse 2 tell us? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may have thought he was in charge of the conquest and the attack on Jerusalem, but he could not do anything without the sovereign hand of God determining it to happen. So here's the point. We've talked about this numerous times at Emmanuel. God is sovereign, and people have human responsibility. Now, did God make Nebuchadnezzar go in there and invade God put a gun to Nebuchadnezzar's head and said, you're going to do this. No, God didn't do that. Nebuchadnezzar acted freely to go in and ransack Jerusalem. But was Nebuchadnezzar doing exactly what God ordained for him to do? Yes, he was sovereignly doing what God ordained for him to do. So this whole exile, this whole Babylonian conquest was ordained by God. God gave. God, go back and read right there. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That would be Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did. It wasn't like... Daniel's, Daniel's perspective is, Nebuchadnezzar's not the one in charge that came in and did this. It was God's doing. It was really God's punishment, God's discipline, God's sovereignty. Now, the word Lord used often in Daniel, there's, there's different words for Lord, okay? So when you see L-O-R-D in all caps in your Bible... That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. In the book of Daniel, sometimes you'll see the word Lord, like in verse 2, the Lord. Do you see all caps in your Bible? No. It's capital L and then lowercase o r d. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai, so, so Yahweh is more like I am, comes from the word I am, the covenant God. Adonai really means owner or sovereign or ruler. It really conveys, like the word Adonai conveys, God is sovereignly powerful. He's the one who is in charge. Okay? God's the one that's doing this. Adonai. Okay, look at verse 9. The Lord gave, the Lord gave <coughs> Daniel favor. 
God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God's the one in control. God is the one that did this. In our evangelical churches, sometimes we can become so man-centered thinking that we're the center of everything and we forget that God is absolutely sovereign. And he's the one that orchestrates and ordains and brings about things for his glory. Okay? So, how does God sovereignly intervene in the lives, in the lives of these four men? Let's keep reading. So let's finish the chapter. Let's go 17 through 21. As for these four youths, God, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, so what does God sovereignly do here? God gives them understanding. God accelerates their learning. God gives them favor. God does a work in these young men to elevate them to where they become like astronomically greater than all of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors to where these four men just like kind of catapulted to the front. Like, I can trust these men. These men have wisdom. And they're only what... 14, 15 years old. Now, they were 10 times better than who? The magicians and enchanters. So we need to understand something about the magicians and the enchanters. We need to understand this occultic paganism that they were steeped in. Now, when your Bible says a magician, it's not, you know, if you're rocky, you want to see we'll pull a rabbit out of a hat? It wasn't like pulling a rabbit out of a hat magician illusionist doing card tricks. Um, these were astrologers that studied the stars. They employed spells. They would deal with so-called evil spirits. And they would do weird things like they would make decisions by examining sheep's livers. <laughs> they would pull out a sheep liver and like touch the liver to like help make the... And they were, they were sorcerers. Now, they were enchanters, meaning... They were spirit mediums who communicated with the dead. Okay, so this is like totally occultic, pagan, occultic, satanic stuff. So this tells you a little bit about how Babylon, their government was run. Okay, how did the king rely, how did the king make decisions based upon occultic, pagan, sorcerer, demonic stuff? And so now God sovereignly says, I'm elevating these four men to bring in godly wisdom to be a voice to this king. Now, I want you to think about these boys for a moment. These boys, and, and again, 14, 15 years old probably, where do they find themselves? They're 900 miles from home. They're away from the temple. They're away from their church family, if you will. And what has happened to them? What did we just look at? They've been isolated. They've been indoctrinated. They took a massive risk by not eating the king's food. 
They're now in the king's service, meaning they have to deal daily with sorcerers and spirit mediums, and their names have been changed to reflect the pagan gods of Babylon, and they're learning an entirely new worldview. So th this is what these boys are, are steeped in. So here's the question. If you're a 14, 15-year-old boy, and this is what you've got to face every day, I got a pagan name, I got these pagan sorcerers, I got the occult all around me, I'm separated from my church family, I've been indoctrinated for three years. Here's the question. How in the world are they going to survive and not compromise and not totally become apostate and rebellious and ungodly? And the answer has to be because of God's sovereign protection. God has to be the one working in their lives, preserving them. God's invisible hand of providence is guiding them, is leading them. He's orchestrating events. They have to be totally dependent upon a sovereign God or they will not survive. So they can sing the songs of Babylon as members of God's family. They're in a world of paganism, occultism, strong temptation to compromise. And yet... Daniel, verse 21, chapter 1, tells us something. Okay, just, an incidental, just an incidental detail. Daniel was there in the court of Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. And you go back and you do the math. Anybody want to guess how old Daniel was? 90. 90. He's 90 years old. So how does... So, so we have a book of the Bible that starts with a young man who's 15 and ends when he's 90. Okay? So one of the exciting aspects of the book of Daniel is that we see a perspective of life from a vantage point of a young, impressionable teenager to a life of a seasoned senior citizen. You often don't get to see that in a book of the Bible. That long of a life. From a 15-year-old boy to a 90-year-old man. He never went back. Did he ever go back to Jerusalem? No. He stayed in Babylon for that long. And the only way that he was godly is because God sustained him. God sovereignly worked in his life. God blessed him. He did not compromise. He remained faithful. And it wasn't because Daniel was all that. It was because God worked in his life. As an old senior citizen. Okay. So... Let's ask the fourth question. This is a question that also often gets neglected when we talk about Old Testament studies. This is my favorite part of doing the Old Testament. Okay? So how do we, here's the fourth big question, how do we avoid reading this as like a morality tale? In other words, you read like Aesop's fables or you read like a secular story like the Odyssey or you, you read some ancient literature and... Um, we're tempted to read something like this and say, well, I can do that. I want to be, dare to be a Daniel. Just be a Daniel. Go live like Daniel. Be a better Daniel. Keep your eyes on Daniel. Let's imitate Daniel. So I could preach this as, okay, everybody go out and be resolute like Daniel. Go be a good Christian like Daniel. Don't compromise like Daniel. And that would be fine information to give you. But there's a false hope that can happen if all I do is tell you to go be a faithful Daniel. Go be like Daniel. 
Because then it becomes up to you and your resolve and your ability to stay determined not to compromise. And then you may be thinking, ah, if I just, if I'm solid and I don't compromise, God, God won't let anything bad happen to me. Because after all, I was good. I didn't compromise. Yin yang, therefore, I didn't compromise, God owes me. Well, what happens if you compromise and you have to pay the secular consequences for it? What happens if you compromise and it brings suffering? What happens if you, if you don't compromise and, and God allows you to go through a time of, of trial? Does God owe you anything just because you're a good person? No. The problem is, if we think that we can just be a better Daniel and God owes us, we leave Christ out of the equation altogether. So our security does not rest in our steadfastness, but in the perfect Savior Jesus, the ultimate Daniel. Now, why do I call Jesus the ultimate Daniel? Who left his home to go to a foreign country? Daniel. Jesus left his home in heaven and came to a foreign country. <laughs> Planet Earth. <laughs> Jesus came to a foreign country far away from his home in heaven and suffered far greater trials than Daniel and his three friends ever did. Daniel and his three friends were great examples of godliness. None were perfect. Daniel sinned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sinned. Jesus was the only one that lived a perfect life that never sinned in thought, word, and deed. And as bad as a fiery furnace is, and as bad as a lion's den is, nothing compares to Jesus' suffering on the cross, where he died for sinners. It was more intense than a fiery furnace or a lion's den. Daniel's a great example, but he never died for sinners. He can do nothing to rescue you from bondage. So, in the same way, Jesus is more than just an example. He's a perfect Savior who died as our substitute, bearing God's full wrath against sin, that we would not have to bear that wrath. Okay? Daniel never got to go back home. And he went through many sufferings. But Jesus got to go back home. After his exile on earth, Jesus returned to home, heaven, as the resurrected Christ and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. So as we study the book of Daniel, we may be tempted to keep our eyes on Daniel or keep our eyes on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, those guys were faithful. Those guys remain, you know, they're good examples. And yes, they're good examples. But ultimately, when we read the book of Daniel, we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Because he's the only one that can save us from our sins. He's the only one that can give us the power to remain resolute. He's the only one that can sustain us to the end through whatever we go through. And so that's why one of my favorite passages of Scripture, you guys know, is Hebrews 12, to looking to Jesus... Or keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
The message of Daniel is not be like Daniel. A lot of Bible studies related to Daniel is like, be like Daniel. Do the Daniel diet. Eat vegetables and water. Be like Daniel. Be resolute and don't compromise. Be like Daniel and stand up for what's right. Yes, yes, and yes. But that's not the ultimate message of the book of Daniel. The message of the book of Daniel is this. The message is to look to a powerful, sovereign God who has sent his one and only son, King Jesus, to die in our place and rise again for our forgiveness so that we can, in confidence, live that life of obedience to him. Not so that he would love us, but because he has already loved us. So, Peter tells us how to live in exile. But he gives us the basis for it. 1 Peter 1, 17-19. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Okay, that's the imperative. Live a holy, God-fearing life in this world. And if that's all we had, okay, how am I going to do that? What's my motivation? What's my power? I, I, how do I do that? Well, Peter finishes it, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the Lamb, is the only one that gives us the power to live as strangers in a strange land, to live in exile, to, to be who God's called us to be. It's only through the blood and power of Christ and through the Holy Spirit that he gives us that power to do that. So as we go through Daniel, we'll see these men stand strong, but let's not keep our eyes on the men. Let's make sure we keep our eyes on Jesus because he's the only one that gives us the strength today to be able to live a life of obedience to him. So we have... Ooh, we got done a little early tonight. It's hard to teach an hour and a half. So we've got time for questions, comments, or snide remarks. So who do you guys have any questions or clarifications or anything or observations you, you want to talk about related to chapter one or introduction to Dan? No, we don't really know. We just we assume he was from a royal nobility. We, I'd have to go back to a commentary to see where, where his family comes from, but we don't have a lot of information about. We know they were from the tribe of Judah, and we know that they were um, probably well-educated, you know, if you want to say part of the upper class of the, of the exiles that came back. It wasn't like just, you know, Joe Blow fishermen down in, you know, some village. You know, these were probably boys that were part of the royal entourage in, in Jerusalem. I have to go back and check, but I don't think there's anything, at least in the book of Daniel. Somebody can correct me on that, if you know. Anything else? Tom? Uh, I noticed in Isaiah 39.7, it talks about, it says, of some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs of the palace of the king of Babylon. Yeah. Is that referring to Daniel? Yeah, it could be. But we don't know exactly. So, yeah, so let's talk about a eunuch. <laughs> so everybody know what a eunuch is. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody knows what a eunuch is. We have kids in here. So the reason that eunuchs served the king was because there was no fear of him, of illegitimate children. Okay, that's, that's why the eunuchs were trusted. 
Now, we don't know if this particular eunuch was a Babylonian eunuch, but we do know that some of those exiles were taken into the court and made eunuchs as part of that conquest to serve in the king's court. Um, and so that was, I guess, the collateral damage of being overtaken by... But um, these boys, we don't have evidence that they were made to be eunuchs, but um, there were evidence of some Israelites being made eunuchs in the, in the court, too, as a, in that prophecy. Because it Isaiah. seems like it never mentions Daniel being married or having any children. Or... Yeah, you know... He, he was. I don't think. He, yeah, he was. A, he was one of the highest advisors of the king. But I don't know if they ever said he was a eunuch. And I think that would have been a pretty good detail because usually when the Bible calls somebody eunuch, it makes a pretty good point. Like the Ethiopian eunuch. The, like it's not just a like if a person was was a eunuch. I think they usually make it known that that person was a eunuch. So the fact that it doesn't say Daniel was a eunuch probably he was not. But yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, but I don't, he never got married. In if he was a eunuch, it would make sense. But um, being you know that close to the king as an advisor, but I don't know if we have explicit to say that he was. Yeah, it doesn't get really explicit. Yeah. 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 You thought you'd come Wednesday night and talk about eunuchs? Is that the last <laughs> thing that you thought you'd talk about on Wednesday night? <laughs> Anything else? All right, well, let me pray for you guys. And um, next week, we'll just keep going through chapter two. And um, each week, we'll do a chapter. And so you can, you can read ahead if you want the whole book or, and just be, be prepared. Or you can read chapter two. And so let's go from there. I'll pray for us. And then you guys have about 15 minutes to hang out or leave or wait for your kids. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, we do want to remain dependent upon you as we live in this secular culture. We don't want to be independent of you, but we want to be dependent. We, Lord, we want to remain faithful to you and not compromise the way Daniel did. Lord, we want to trust in your absolute sovereignty and know that your hand of sovereignty is guiding us. And, and ultimately, Jesus, we want to rely upon you as our Savior, you as our source of strength, and know that we can't live this Christian life in our own power. We need your grace. We need your sustaining strength in our lives. And so, Jesus, thank you that you died for us and rose again. And help us to keep our eyes upon you in everything that we do for your glory. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.